The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. I'm joined now by journalist, broadcaster and host of Tonight with Vincent Brown, the man himself, Vincent Brown. Hello, George. Um, a really interesting article today, I thought, by you in the Irish Times, where you're not as exercised as the rest of us are about the fact that we don't have a government. Uh, well, we do have a government. We have a caretaker government, and which is required by the Constitution to carry out the dictates of the diktat of the doll. And there's nothing to stop the doll getting on with dealing with the serious problems we have in a number of fronts to do with housing, homelessness, to do with um, evictions, and to do with health care and all the other matters. Nothing to stop the doll dealing with all those things and instructing the caretakers to get on with it and do what the doll decides. But isn't that very unstable? Why is it unstable? Because they all have, there's nobody of a kind of a like mind. And they all, like, like there's people who don't want water and there's people who do want water, charges, I mean, and, yeah, you know, all that issue, sort of thing. The issue of water is, is, is finished. There's a clear majority in the doll in favour of getting rid of water charges. So that's gone. But otherwise, there is a, a, a depressing consensus across the board on all the other major issues, consensus between Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, what remains of the Labour Party, and actually Sinn Féin as well. And, and the idea that there wouldn't be, a, that that couldn't prevail in the doll is just, in my view, mistaken. Of course, people will be, uh, try to be opportunist, try to pull the rug at a time that they think would be in their interest. But I think that that would be transparent to the electorate and would do, do them damage in a subsequent election. And they know it. They know they'd have to be careful about how they behaved in a doll, where for the first time in a long time, maybe first time ever, the doll was relevant. And the doll was doing its constitutional function in deciding policy, deciding on legislation, deciding budgetary matters, etc. Now, um, you make a, a, a very valid point, which when I read it, of course, I, I hadn't thought about it, but you brought it to my mind, which was to say that all our problems stem from a period when we had stable government. So why are we all so hung up on the idea of stable government? That's right. The stable government has done terrible damage to the country. and they've uh, Probably more than a million people have emigrated from this country because, because of the policies of stable governments. Stable governments have, have well, their water infrastructure completely screwed up because of them. Has quite, uh, the health service screwed up by them. The, we have a deeply unequitable and unfair society because of stable governments. All the major problems that we have arose from stable governments. We do not need that. But, but more, than, more than that, stable governments have made doll dysfunctional, our, our political system dysfunctional, because the doll doesn't function anymore. The doll takes no decisions with stable governments in place, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. So we should get, oh, okay. we should welcome the opportunity now to fix all this, 
and, and to protect ourselves against stable governments in the future. But it, it, there are two other two systems. If you look at the House of Commons, uh, it follows the stable government uh, code, and is it worse or better, Britain, I mean. Then you have the executive power of Obama or, or whoever the president might be in the USA, and he is hidebound by uh, Congress. If Congress isn't of the same party, they doesn't uh, get anything done. So there doesn't seem to be a system that delivers, uh, albeit uh, a, a very worthwhile target that you're looking for, but it seems unattainable in modern politics. Well, just on the British system, um, uh, frequently in the British, in the British Parliament in Westminster, um, there are Governments are defeated on various issues. And there's no big crisis, no big hullabaloo about it. And Tory backbenchers who vote against the government are not expelled from the party, are not expelled from the parliamentary party. That doesn't happen. They're a far freer way of doing things. In America, we, the situation in America now is very adversarial and very contentious and a, a bit crazy. Happily, our political culture is not that crazy at least so far. And I see no reason why that, for instance, in the forthcoming budget, which will happen in October of this year, there couldn't be negotiation in the doll and given give and take in the doll between the various parties and eventually have a budget that would command the, the support of maybe 80% of the doll. And that would be far better. Decisions taken by groups and taken after a lot of debate and a lot of contention and a lot of change are better decisions than decisions taken by a small country within the cabinet and then forced it through the cabinet and forced it through the doll. even if you have um, this different kind of doll that we have now in terms of makeup, you still have a cabinet. You still have a cabinet that meets on a regular basis and makes decisions. You still have ministers who, who decide how that department is run, whether it's health, transport or whatever. Well, they wouldn't be able to decide. That's the point of it. They'd have to get the Dawes agreement to, uh, on uh, our policy initiatives. And the policy initiatives would come back to be made by the Dawes. That's the way the system is supposed to run, and that's what our Constitution says. But we have screwed up the constitutional arrangements by, giving, by having a system whereby the party in government or the parties in government can impose a, their diktat on the Dawes, thereby making the Dawes irrelevant. And that has led to bad government, bad decisions, and dysfunctional uh, and, and a dysfunctional arrangement. And also, it's anti-democratic. So it would be far better. We have an opportunity now to to, to change the system and make sure that even if there is uh, a majority government in the next while, that we are protected against the damage that majority governments do by changing the whip system uh, situation like this, and also by introducing. As provision that I've referred to this morning, the Irish Times called it the decisive minority. It applies in the okay. Danish Parliament. And if I, by the way, in the German Constitution, there's a provision in the German Constitution which makes it an offence, i.e., a crime, for um, uh, deputies in the Danish Parliament to be intimidated in the exercise of their con- conscientious 
decision on any issue. Ah, yeah. And well, we should have a decision, decision on that too. What's the ah, yeah about? Well, the ah, yeah is about you're a great theoretician. You're just totally removed from reality. So, <laughs> well, let me tell you, you start talking about Denmark, which has, by my standards, an unstable government. So what kind of a, what kind of a government did it actually finish up with? They actually finished up with a right-wing government which has closed its borders, which is threatening to take wedding rings off people's fingers to pay for their social welfare. This is not the government of Vincent's, Vincent Brown's nirvana. This is the exact opposite to what you're looking for. Yeah, well, uh, well, Denmark has been a far more stable society and a stable state and fairer state than Ireland has ever been. And that uh, uh, and we, we we should just note that and their uh, political system works far better than our political system has worked. Yes, now and again you have this craziness that emerges as, as you have throughout Europe, craziness on regard to the migration issue. Um, um, but in general, the Danish the Danish state has been far more effective than our state has done. Our state has not been there's not a good record in our state. All right. Um, uh, all the freedom stuff that we talked about and talked about, like we've, we've made a mess of it to a very large extent. So, um, you mentioned adversarial politics in the USA. Um, are you okay with President Donald Trump? Is that okay with you? <laughs> Would I welcome Donald Trump as President of the United States? Of course I wouldn't. What's that point? What's that got to do with what we're talking about? With it's talking, well, it's talking about unstable government. You will, you will guarantee if you have Donald Trump as president, it could well be an unstable government well, where the president and Congress were absolutely at loggerheads well, well, day well, after hope, day. Yeah, well, I would hope there would be an unstable government if Donald Trump becomes president, because if there wasn't stability, it would mean that Congress would support what Donald Trump would want to do as president. So let's hope that if he does become president, there's an unstable that he's in an unstable situation, and that Congress has okay. has a hold on the madness that he might want, want to engage in. But but that's okay. not relevant really to the point I'm making. I'm back to the point you're making. We have a dysfunctional yeah. situation here, and we should do something right. about it now. Well, I'm okay. Before you go, then, uh, who are you going to bestow the Vincent Brown seal of approval on as Taoiseach? Who's your man for Taoiseach? Well, this silly, silly stuff about me, but it doesn't matter. Now, what matters? Of course, it and matters. This, of course, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference at all. And the what matters is: do we have a system that works? in an open way and in a way that respects democracy and respects the will of the people and that doesn't that 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 the our parliament isn't trampled upon by an all powerful executive. And we've got to use this unique opportunity, which might not arise again for a generation, to change the system and to protect us against stable governments in the future. Because looking back on the damage stable governments have done we should protect ourselves against them. All right. Well, Enda Kenny thinks um, the next day's shook is very important. He said so in Washington, D.C. Well, all right. That's his opinion. Um, but I don't think it matters at all. Do you think it matters? I'm old school, I, as you know. I'm old school. And, well, do you think it matters? And if so, and, and, and tell me why, if you do think it matters. I told you, I'm old school. I like my government stable. I like them having a majority. I like having a cabinet in which they're all added. I like all that sort of stuff. But in, in spite of what it does, in spite of what it does to Parliament, 
and in spite of the, the, the history of really bad decisions being taken. It's crazy. We, 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 we've had a really bad... Like we've, we've had several governments now that have done damage to the country, and we should now review, well, what's wrong with the system that gives us that? And one of the things that's wrong is that the doll is made irrelevant. Doll is a sideshow. I just think faraway hills are greener, but there is no hill f- more far away and more greener than tonight with Vincent Brown at 11 o'clock uh, on TV3, presented by our man, Vincent Brown. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, George. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook. Well, it is Brain Awareness Week and I thought I'd ask my next guest to come in and talk to me about the issue um, of brain awareness. Uh, It's director of the Dementia Research Programme at the School of Psychology and the Institute of Neuroscience in Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, Professor uh, Sabina Brennan, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, the, the Brain Awareness Week, what are we trying to do? I mean, we know we've all got a brain, so what awareness are we trying to achieve now? Well, yeah, it's exactly what you say. We, we know we've got a brain, but it's very easy sometimes to forget we have it because it's in our head. And we think of physical health and we think of mental health. Um, we don't often think of brain health. Um, so that's one of the reasons. And also, I think another part is um, that people don't really know a lot about how the brain works because we're only learning in, in more recent years. We kind of have technology that allows us to look inside the brain. Well, in that point, I mean, um, you know, everybody goes to the gym and, and they, they're they looking at their biceps and their triceps and their deltoids, but there isn't any gym for the brain. Now, if you look at somebody like me, who's at a very advanced age and is terrified, I mean, stone cold terrified of not being able to remember my name or perhaps then being consigned to a home somewhere in which, you know, somebody is shoveling cold rice pudding down my throat. This this frightens the life out of me. How can I now do the gym equivalent for my brain? Well, the first thing is, you know, you're really not alone in that fear. I did some research a few years ago when I started to develop the materials around brain health and I asked Europeans, now this was across Europe, not just Ireland, and I asked them what they feared most about growing old and they told me that they feared losing their memory, as you just said, and they told me that they feared losing their independence, as you just said, and then they also told me that dementia was the disease that they feared most. So it's right up there um, in terms of fears. Now, um, what can we do? Well, in and around Brain Awareness Week, um, what what, what we're learning is there's a number of lifestyle changes that people can make, modifiable lifestyle changes that people can do to reduce their risk. And they're things that are generally good for your cardiovascular health, physical exercise, managing your weight, um, not smoking, those kind of things. But what I thought would be interesting to talk about on Brain Awareness Week is education. 
because that's something that is relevant to brain health right across the lifespan. Yeah, but the one thing that is increasing, surely, is if we're all now going to live to 100, and it's possible that children born today are going to live to 100, and, and dementia and Alzheimer's are, are the illnesses of old age, by absolutely mathematical definition, we're going to have more people with dementia. It's just a fact of life. So now, have we got, given that we haven't got a game plan for how we're going to pay the old age pensions for these people, we know we have no game plan. Presumably we have no game plan for how we're going to handle all these extra people with dementia either. Are we, have we? Well, we have, we have some really good strategies. We have a fantastic positive ageing strategy that took six six years to develop and that's sitting on a shelf uh, waiting to be implemented since 2013. It's one of those things that got shelved um, during the cuts Um, and it has some really, really um, good goals in there that really support positive ageing and um, focus on uh, people doing things to improve um, or reduce their risk of developing dementia and allowing them to live independently in the community and also introducing policies to support us living independently in the community. But um, the, you're standing for the Shannon election. I Presumably am. you're standing for the Shannon because you think that dementia is important and that there might be a voice for dementia in the Shannon. Is that where you're coming from? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm actually standing even wider than that because I don't think that there's a voice in government for older people. Um, And I think that's hugely important. And I think um, older people are misrepresented as uh, burdensome bed blockers. Um, we saw it last week, um, you know, the suggestion that when we hit later life, you know, somehow we've lost our value and meaning because we're empty nesters and, um, and we should leave our homes. Um, and um, it, that that really is just purely ageist and, and, and it fails to acknowledge us as individuals who are entitled to the same rights as everyone else. Now, when you you stand in a constituency like Trinity College Dublin, uh, where, where you want to get one of the Senate seats in that, um, the, the thing is that not all the old people went to Trinity. So there's a ton of old people who might think this is a great idea Professor Brennan's come up with but I can't vote for it. Yeah, that's exactly the case. So really, I want to be a voice for older people, for carers and for people with neurological conditions. However, if you think back, people like me, I'm 53 now. I didn't get to go to university. Most people my age, over 60, over 70, really didn't have the opportunity to go to university. So really what we need is those who are younger, who did have access to free education, to switch it up and to offer to, 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 to vote for a voice for older but people. But let's get back to brain awareness, sure. right? You can't really help me in a way because you, as an expert in the field of dementia, you can't tell George or Ingrid, both roughly the same age, you can't tell which of us is likely to get dementia and which of us isn't because it's a bit. it appears to be a bit of a lottery, doesn't it? Well, I, so or on. does it? Is it or isn't it a lottery? And no, I don't. I, I I don't know that it is. I think the way it is is we know about a number of risk factors, right? Um. So as uh, but smoking's a catch-all. You'll have to give me a better one than that. In George and Ingrid are non-smokers. That's so good. You better give so me that's a better good. one. Right. Low educational attainment. So if you finish school early, 
um, that's a risk factor. Really? Yes. And that's one of the things that I did want to talk about today. And that's why it's important to think about brain health, dementia prevention, not as something for over 50s or for later life, but as something that we need good government policies All right. and practice but, but, on. But my mother uh, died uh, and she could still do mental arithmetic in her head, but she left school at 14. But the education for her was further education, which was actually Cork City Library. So therefore, what you're really saying is, are you? It doesn't have to be education in the sense of doing the leaving cert. It has to be that you're edu- you're you're educating yourself or you're interested or whatever. Is that what it is? You are absolutely spot on. That's exactly it. So what another thing I'd like to really switch up is how we define education. So education is not just for school. It's not just for college. It's for life. So what we're talking about is lifelong learning, lifelong stimulation. I'm sure he'd love to hear me say this, but what you're basically saying is reading Jeffrey Archer might, might, might prolong your brain. But no, I, I jest. But but like books or crosswords or Sudoku, and the, is this what you're talking about or not? Yeah, the, the key thing really is in challenging your brain. So it's not necessarily important what you actually do. The point is that it's an activity that pushes your brain beyond the okay. comfort zone. But you haven't helped me. You still haven't told me whether which of George and Ingrid is more likely to develop dementia. You well, don't know because you can't see the brain. Isn't this your problem? You can get an X-ray of my of my broken leg. You can't get an X-ray of my broken brain. But even if you could, right, and you look in and we know that if you look in um, people's brains and you find what are the pathological hallmarks of dementia, plaques and tangles, two individuals can have those plaques and tangles, but only one of them actually manifested the symptoms of dementia. We actually know that 25% of people who post-mortem have sufficient of that pathology in their brain for a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease never manifested any of the symptoms. And so what we look at in our research is to try and understand what is it that gives that individual resilience against the disease? Okay, we're in Cheltenham week, all right? Okay. Uh, let's <laughs> I don't know take, anything about no, horses. No, 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 <laughs> neither do I. But let's take a bet here, right? Okay. If you're betting, yes. and, on the, and we know the population, it's now about 82, I think, is the life expectancy, that kind of number. Right. What's the percentage that somebody who lives to their 80s that they're going to develop dementia or Alzheimer's or some age-related brain disease? Well, you're spot on because age is the biggest risk factor and yeah. your risk, um, I think it doubles every five years as you get older. And by the time you get older, you're more likely that if you do get a dementia, it will be a mixed dementia. But that's 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 the the sort of the bad news in a sense in that it's age. But what what I'd love to say to you is you're asking me about yourself and Ingrid and you need a little bit more information to try and establish uh, what risks you might have. And it would be things like are you a current smoker? Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have type 2 diabetes? Do you engage in physical exercise? Okay, well, let's let's come along. And, and I say, I'm smoking, I don't do any exercise, I have high blood pressure, and I forget what the fuck one is, right? But I've done them all. I tick all the bad boxes. Yeah. But I could still go to my grave with 
you know, the, the the theory of Archimedes. So there's the problem with this is there isn't there isn't one certainty that we're all going to get old and we're all going to get older and the risk of age-related brain trauma is going to get higher, isn't it? Right. There are the certainties. Brain, nor brain disease. Brain disease. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, Isn't that right? Yeah, your risk does increase with age. But what we're talking about is trying to, what we say is change the trajectory. So push out the point in time when you might actually manifest the symptoms. So if we could push out the onset of the disease by two years, okay, you reduce the prevalence rate by 20%. All right. But, you know, um, if, if, if you go into the Shannon... Right. No, but if you do, like, and you're talking about all these nice big words, right? And the vast proportion of people are falling asleep because you're talking about big words. About Thanks the brain. very much. No, but do you know what I mean? <laughs> right? It's not exactly the most popular thing in the world. The, it, but there is surely a key thing is that, and we've had tons of inquiries and tons of investigations into old people being ill-treated in uh, uh, homes funded by the state. So, so surely hand in hand with your your passion for fixing the disease of the brain, you must also now fix the the way we're looked after. Oh, absolutely. That's because something... if you're not going to look after me when I get it. I'm not very happy about that. Oh, no, no, absolutely. What I'm all for, as I said, the positive ageing strategy, we actually absolutely need a combat ageism plan. Ireland is inherently ageist. And you are absolutely right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, sort of narrow it to state funded homes or whatever. I think... No, but home, like they get funding in some shape or form. It doesn't matter. I don't care who's going to be looking after me, but I do not want to be sitting there uh, in my own excrement or I, I do not want to be sitting there with cold rice pudding or whatever. I, I want to be certain because I don't I'm not there yet. I want to be certain that there is a vibrant, rel- regulated structure because absolutely. we've had too many examples in our newspapers and our television. Absolutely, absolutely. That's why the positive aging strategy has to be has to be implemented and one of the ways I don't believe it's ever going to be implemented unless we have a voice in government and I believe right I'm happy to go into the Shannon I'm happy to be that person who's going to keep calling it out but I believe that we need a senior minister for older persons Well we have a minister for children what's the difference? We do absolutely well we need a minister for older persons because nobody is speaking out nobody is the voice for older persons and because of ageism and stigma associated with diseases like dementia you see we're quite happy to hide them away um, uh, hide, I mean, the, by them, I mean the diseases. We it, it, People with dementia aren't really integrated in society and that's something that should change also. Oh, but you're not seriously suggesting that I go walking down Leafy Fox Rock when I mightn't be able to find my way back. I mean, I'm not being yeah. humorous about it, but I mean, you have to put somebody into care either of their family or of somebody else. Oh, absolutely. But that care doesn't necessarily have to be institutionalised care. So why shouldn't you even if you have a disease like dementia be able to walk down the leafy avenue that you love you may no longer be able to do it on your own but you should be able to do it if you so desire with the support whether it's of a care assistant or you're a family carer and that's another thing is you, we really need to support caring as a proper profession yeah. with t- proper okay. training and standardisation 
All right. Uh, thanks very much. You haven't cheered me up now. I, I have to tell you. <laughs> you led the conversation no, in that the, direction. Just before you go, like, give me a figure. Um, the older people are going to be a, a larger percentage of the total population. Isn't that right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And we have, you see, currently Quickly globally, there's 47 million people living with dementia. By 2050, the predictions are 134 million people. That's what we're talking about. If we don't, but you see, the thing is, if we introduce public health measures, primary prevention, that that starts tackling things right across the lifespan, including early years education, getting people to stay in school for longer, supporting those kind of things, supporting lifelong learning, public health messages. Um, we really actually can impact but, on but, those but, numbers. But, but, but like, do you remember Christian Bernard, no? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did the first heart transplant. Oh, right. He did the first heart transplant in a Groot Shore Hospital in, in uh, South Africa. There's not many. anything wrong with your memory, is no, there, no. George? No, I keep practising. <laughs> you see, uh, genuinely. That's the thing. I keep practising. Yeah. I keep practising. Um, so, the, the point about it is that nobody believed you could transplant a heart, but you could. So, therefore, isn't it possible, and it was a rather funny movie called Two Brains with Tony Martin, maybe you'll be able to transplant the brain. You don't know that. Yeah, but what I do know is, you see, with neuroplasticity, the really exciting thing about the brain What's is... What's neuroplasticity? So it, 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 we can grow new neurons every time you're... Cha- that's, that's why you're staying sharp. Because you're challenging your brain and you're forcing yourself to remember things, you're growing new neurons. You're changing your so brain. When I, so when I refuse to look up a phone number in my phone and instead try and do it from memory, which I do all the time, right... I'm growing new neurons. That's exactly it's the most positive information you've given me in the last time. Well, you, 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 as I said, you led it that way. What I'm trying to say, that's what I said to you. It doesn't matter what you do. It's that you're challenging yourself. So exactly that's it. That simple thing. Instead of looking it up, you're challenging yourself All to right. remember it. But you have now raised an appalling uh, <laughs> uh, spectre. What about all these kids? My my grandchildren, yeah. who don't remember anything because they know they can just go to Google to get it. They can swipe in the iPhone from the age of of two or younger. So it's the one thing. So nobody knows phone numbers. Nobody knows anything. That's anymore. A, that's a very specific, particular skill, and you've just touched on the one skill, really one of the skills that older adults are much better at than younger people because of changes in technology over time. So therefore, this new generation is risking possible brain disease. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. You just just, don't want to answer that tough question. No, no, I do. No, it's not a tough question. It just means we're better at that particular task. However, if we train them up and if they started training themselves to do it, they could grow those new neurons too and learn how to do that. I'm going to to talk to my two grand, well, two of my grandchildren um, over the weekend and I'm going to have them growing neurons like there's no tomorrow. I'll get a watering can and pour it on top of them just to help the process along, but that's what it is. BDNF is 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 if is, is, is it's it's like a fertilizer on the brain that grows the new neurons. There you are. It <laughs> is a brain awareness week. My guest was Sabine Brennan, who is director of the dementia research program at the School of Psychology and also a candidate for Trinity and Shandadern. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear change at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
Thanks, Kian. Well, I'm joined now in the studio by the Professor of American Studies and Journalism at the University of Notre Dame, uh, who is in Ireland, Bob Schmuel. Professor Schmuel, welcome to the programme. Before we get to the nub of the discussion, why are you in Ireland? I'm in Ireland to talk a little bit about the documentary that Notre Dame spearheaded on 1916, The Irish Rebellion, and the theatrical version of the three hours that was aired on uh, RTE. Yeah. That will be shown for the very first time tonight in the uh, National Concert Hall. And really, for the last decade, I have been uh, moonlighting when I can looking at the American role in the Easter Rising. So I contributed to that documentary and and wrote a uh, book about it. Well, we're going to be talking about the book before you go back to America. It's Ireland's Exiled Children, America and the Easter Rising. So don't give away your best stuff. I'm not going to give away even the worst stuff. (laughs) I'm just explaining why we're we're here. But... um, when I say I was taking a holiday, I was taking a holiday from uh, trying to figure out uh, American politics, which yeah. has become endlessly fascinating and frightening at the very okay. same time. Now, the day that is in it, uh, Trump wins again, but he is not winning enough. It looks like he's going to finish up with 45% of, of the 50-odd percent that he needs. Hillary has a pretty massive victory. But this thing's been going on forever, and this is only the primaries, and then there's the presidential election. So so you're not a fan of the primaries. I'm not a fan of the way that the primaries are now organized. I think it is uh, really chaos. I think it is um, uh, crazy to try to nominate the leading candidates for the presidency of the United States in such a foolish, misguided way. There is no coherence to it, George. If you walked up and down the streets of Chicago, which I know you have in the past, and asked people, um, how do we go about nominating the president or the candidates for president in the United States? people would begin to scratch their heads right from the start because every state is different. Some states have caucuses, which are small, little, organized activities for party members, and they select the delegates that way on a local level, and then they go to the state level. Some of the states have primaries, and that would be open secret ballot elections. But here we get into the nuances of primaries. Some of them are open, meaning that I, as a person who would be largely independent, would go in in May, that's when it is in Indiana, and ask for either a Democratic or a Republican ballot. I could vote in either one. Some states have closed primaries, meaning that members of the Republican Party 
have to vote in the Republican okay. primary. So uh, my guests remember uh, Professor Rob Schmuel of uh, Notre Dame University. But he, So we've got three systems already. We've got mm-hmm. the caucuses. We've got the open uh, primary where anybody can vote, really. We've got a closed primary where Republicans only can vote. But then even that is further subdivided because I was looking this morning Trump wins Florida, and he wins all the delegates. But in another state, the delegates are shared out on the basis of the percentage votes you get. All right, so clearly it's a crazy system. Um, A lot of the things they do in America, isn't this true? For instance, the Electoral College, for instance. A lot of this is based on the sort of founding fathers, and it's based on when America, when the the West was was a long way away and covered wagons or Pony Express had to bring the vote. So the system is certainly based on very, like very much an earlier form of voting technology. Isn't that so? Uh, to a degree, but not certainly in the nominating process. No, I get that. Yeah. I was just really saying yeah. the American system is is like... A couple of hundred years old. It's it's been forever thus, as it were. Uh, certainly, the electoral college, which came up for so much criticism in two thousand, when you had the popular vote going to Al Gore, but then ultimately the election decided by the Supreme Court of the United States going to George W. Bush. But George, the key date in the way that the parties go about nominating the presidential candidates. The key date is 1968. And the reason for that is that at the Democratic Convention that year, which some of your listeners might remember was a very bloody occasion in Chicago, at that convention, Hubert Humphrey was nominated. And Hubert Humphrey was Lyndon Johnson's vice president. Hubert Humphrey had not participated in any of the primaries or the caucuses, but he wins the nomination. And as soon as that happened, the Democrats said, we need a more open process, one that allows our members to take part. And that began the movement in the direction of more primaries, more caucuses. Back in 1968, there were only 15 primaries in the whole United States of America. Now, generally, every state has a primary or a caucus. So we're up around 50. But one of the things that amazes us here in Ireland is the cost of all this. Mm. Is there an estimated cost of what Hillary or Trump might spend uh, to get the nomination alone? Oh, uh, we're talking one to two billion dollars. Billion? Billion. Yeah. I mean, we're talking uh, large money. There is an article in the New York Times this very day that assesses the earned and paid media attention thus far. Okay, and we're only a little over halfway through the nominating process. And it says that Donald Trump has earned close to $2 billion worth of media attention. 
Hillary Clinton has earned $746 million. Now, when you say earned, that's the cost of of what the media attention will be if you paid for it. That's correct. That's correct. But they presumably don't pay for it. uh, Donald Trump has paid $10 million. Okay. That's it for his advertising. When the what the earned media attention would be would be time on television that news outlets would sure. devote to it. But and this is we're only halfway. Right. Um, but isn't there a real danger here that if the numbers are so great and the candidates are fundraising? Isn't there a real danger in a democracy that they're given hostages to fortune? That some, uh, you know, that Howard Hughes, God rest him, in his penthouse in Las Vegas, offers somebody a ton of money and then ultimately controls that president? I mean, that certainly is uh, one of the dangers that uh, that we face, and. The very important Supreme Court case that was decided a few years ago, which opened the door to what are now called super PACs, PACs meaning political action committees, and they are allowed to accept large sums of money, and it's called dark money for a reason, because people who are giving that money don't want to be known and associated with that. Uh, now it's gift. interesting for you because as a as a professor of history at Notre Dame University, but with a keen interest in Ireland, and you know you're here because of the rising and the RT television programs. Uh, the the whole point about the Irish system is we're we're moving ever to more towards every dime has to be accounted for. Who did you get it from? And also we're increasingly moving towards a situation where the taxpayer, in effect, is paying for the election. And um, isn't that true democracy? If the taxpayer is paying for the election, I'll give you an example. After the Watergate scandal, which um, led ultimately to the resignation of Richard Nixon, the Congress passed legislation about the public funding of the presidential contest. And what would happen was that each of the major candidates for the fall election would receive a sum of money that would allow him, uh, it's always been a him, to, to run. Uh, and they did not have to go out and raise these tremendous amounts of money. When Barack Obama was running in 2008, the first time, he said, I will follow that plan. But then Barack Obama started to raise a lot more money. And he made the decision, I am going to go my own way and raise my own money. And he then was able to raise so much more than John McCain, his opponent, in 2008. Um, And what has happened is the barriers have come down and the public involvement in terms of financing uh, no longer really exists. And we're in this Wild West phase 
uh, dark money with large super PACs. Example, Jeb Bush uh, had about $150 million available to him, uh, and most of it was from uh, super PAC money. Uh, Well, let's face it, that didn't get him anywhere, and uh, he's... Not even a factor. Right uh, now, there was any a longer. okay. It was a great television series, fictional but really based on Nixon, called Washington Behind Closed yeah, Doors with Cliff that. Robertson, yeah. and uh, the organization was called Creep. Interestingly, the committee to reelect the president, but they had so much money, and there was there was wheelbarrow loads of money. Now I know it was fictional, but there was wheelbarrow loads of money coming into this huge walk-in safe. Now the numbers you're describing, there's got to be huge safes somewhere with barrel loads of money with these candidates. Oh, there certainly are. And in an odd sort of way, and we make fun of uh, Donald Trump, and it's easy to make fun of Donald Trump, but one of the uh, positives about him that the people recognize is that he is doing this all on his own. He's spending his own money. At the end of the day, he is beholding to no one. He is not a captive of anyone. And um, he's such a master at getting uh, the attention that I already mentioned that uh, in other than a few commercials and flying his jet around the country, uh, that would be his uh, he's, primary expenses. To, in fact, go back to, in a way, where we started, he's got $2 billion worth of, in effect, advertising, but he's only, but he's only spent $10 million. Right. That's exactly right. And Is um, this a... Is this a, what's the word? Is, is this a template for the future then? Or do you have to be a pretty spectacular person like Trump clearly is to do that? Um the head of uh, CBS, one of the major networks in America, uh, was talking about the way in which Donald Trump is acting and the attention he, that he brings and the advertising dollars that uh, would be related to him in terms of, of interest. And he said, I've never seen anything like this. It's a terrible thing to say, but bring it on, Donald. Keep going. It may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. <laughs> not a bad way to finish. My guest, uh, Professor Robert Schmuel, uh, Professor of History and Journalism, American Studies, I should say, at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, he is also, of course, you'll see his uh, very attractive visage on the RT documentary on the rising for which his university, Notre Dame, South Bend, Indiana, has made such a massive contribution. We'll have him back again before uh, the month is out because we're going to talk about his book, Ireland's Exiled Children. Just got it today. Can't wait to read it. America and the East are rising. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, George, very much. Philip Annoy is next with Movies and Television. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie uh, All right, uh, 
text in from cycling activist Paul McQuaid. He said, George, it's a pleasure cycling home. I prefer when it's raining, but I enjoy good weather too. Well, Paul, you'd be amazed to hear. I, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to test a motorised bicycle or power bike or whatever you call them. So I might bump into you as I'm whizzing home on the N11 without pedalling with my powered bike. Anyway, far more important is the independent councillor at Dublin City Council, Mannix Flynn. Mannix, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. Uh, Councillor Flynn, you, you're, you have a proposal before council do what? Um, I forwarded a motion to the protocol committee in Dublin City Council, which was accepted, uh, that we would um, rid ourselves of the title of Lord Mayor. We keep the title Mayor, but we certainly get rid of the title Lord. I believe that that title of Lord Mayor is repugnant and that it doesn't have a place in the Republic and it should have been dispensed with a long time ago. Um, this motion went to the protocol uh, committee, was uh, voted and accepted, and now it goes before Dublin City Council for debate. And that's the issue at the moment. Dublin City Council uh, would would have a formation in which it was likely it's likely to approve it. Isn't that so? There would be people uh, of of uh, like-minded people. Let's put it that way. Well, there you, would, would be. There? there would be, but I mean, you know, there's quite a lot of councils there who would suffer from what I call status anxiety, and a lot of people like you know the title of Lord Mayor and they like the whole chain. And uh, you know, at the moment we have a Sinn Fein Lord Mayor and we have a council that's more or less dominated by 19 Sinn Feiners. They may decide to actually keep it in you know there's also yeah. the Labour Party there who like the title as well they may it's quite but, interesting but you're not it, getting rid of the chain now well again I would imagine that the chain would only come out on special occasions that the chain wouldn't necessarily be worn all the time that the chain would come out for you know rather official occasions or celebrity occasions but wouldn't necessarily be worn to every single occasion because again I find the chains of office are something that should be consigned to ceremonial you're, issues. You're definitely not a pomp and ceremony man anyway. That's I love sure. a bit of pomp and ceremony. I love a brass band. I love all of that kind of stuff. I think it's all fine and dandy but there's a place for it and in the democratic process of Dublin City Council business chains, chains of office, titles, grandiose uh, uh, status anxieties have no place in that. I believe that it's time to consign the title Lord Mayor uh, to the history books. I, I believe that. it's time to put the chain down into the archives and let the public view it and take it out, as I say, in ceremonies. So, so the Lord Mayor just comes out in a, in a three-piece suit, like? Well, the Lord Mayor is But if Mick Wallace, the... I mean, he can't be mayor, or Lord Mayor of Dublin, uh, but if Mick Wallace was Lord Mayor of Dublin, sure he wouldn't even wear a tie. Well, he probably or, wouldn't or wear a tie. Or Boyd Barrett or the rest they, No, they, they wouldn't necessarily wear a tie. And I say there's oh, but you can't have that man. But, but you can't have them like, running around in a grandiose chain and you can't have them running around with a title. What I'm suggesting here is is that there's an appropriate title which would be mayor, civic mayor, or chairperson, or first citizen. This is what they are. The attire that they wear, we have a protocol in, in City Council, we have a code in Dublin City Council, it's mainly adhered to. What goes on in the doll is, again, uh, I'm not there yet, I will be there, and I will try and uh, give them uh, some sort of code of code of conduct in terms of their right. dress code. Let's go back. Where does, because there are only, what, three, four cities, Cork, Dublin, Waterford, Galway, maybe is it where the mayor is Lord Mayor? Yes, there are. There are. I think there, there's about four of them. And that comes from where? Like, why? Why is it Mayor of Kilkenny, but the Lord Mayor of 
Cork. Because they have the status in terms of city. That's where they have and they have this handed down decree from London way back in the day oh, right. that they so could establish the, the a The mayor of a city is Lord Mayor, is he? The, the, the mayor of a city, you know, would be the mayor, the civic mayor. The title Lord Mayor is an ancient title that's, besto- right, okay. but that's bestowed upon the city from decrees way back from the the, the Crown of England. But 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 like we've like we're a hundred years on now from the rising, and then we're ninety years on from the first doll or whatever it is. I mean, so we don't care where it came from in a way. Well, like, I think it's. Imp- I think it, yeah. we do care. I think you know if you're in a republic, you're in a republic. So you have to actually that that republic has to be active okay. in, in in all its forms. But so we, the idea of somebody being titled Lord Mayor is repugnant to the idea of republic. Now I would be very much in favour of the republic that no person holds title over another person, and so therefore there's no need to have these titles because as I say they're kind of ridiculous anyway. They but, don't but hold they, any power. All right, okay, but this is interesting. I mean, our uh, our our judiciary say come from originally Britain mm-hmm. as well. So, mm-hmm. like, if you had your way, you'd be opposed to wigs and gowns as well. No, no, no. Would I mean, the no, you and, wouldn't. No, the wigs okay. and gowns are appropriate, and people have a, a choice to wear them or don't. Some do, some don't. But we don't have any Lord Chief Justices like you do in the UK. We have Supreme sure. Court judges, and they're exemplary. And I'm very fond of my judiciary. I have to say, and I'm very fond right, of my okay. my justice system, and I think it's appropriate for the Republic. However, I do find that there's a contradiction when you're referring to someone as Lord Mayor. If I was up in Belfast, I'd have no problem referring to someone as Lord Mayor because that's the title that's bestowed upon them and that's another jurisdiction under another yeah. control. If I was in the UK, I would have absolute okay. respect for it. Now, I'm not I'm, disrespecting the title. I'm just saying that the title has no regard and should be dispensed with and put to, to history. No, you're making sense, right? Thank you very much, No, no, you are. appreciate that. Right, come with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're making sense. I'm, I'm less with you on the chain because, like... That the president of Dublin Chamber of Commerce has a chain. The president of the Accountants Association has a chain. Chains kind of go with kind of president. I, I understand that, okay. But say, for instance, I'm deputising for the Lord Mayor, which yeah. I do on occasion, or the yeah. mayor, as I would call it. And I have to take the chain out with me. I take the, the deputy chain. Yeah. It's a very expensive item. It's solid gold. I have to take that chain, and I have to wear that chain, and then I have to bring it back to the mansion. I would rather a small little badge or a small little no, no, hang on a second, hang on a second. Just just bear with me. Now, if somebody wants to wear the chain, that's their business. But I'd like the option of not wearing the chain. So there's a protocol there. For All instance, right. people in the courts can wear the wig and gown if they wish as senior counsels. Right. Um, some judges can wear the wig and gown if they wish, you know, in certain court cases. So they have a choice. I don't have any All choices. Right. But, there asking, is, but there is an economic advantage to pomp and ceremony. For, no, I mean, in no, the no, sense... No, 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 but if you go to London yes. and it's the Queen's birthday... You all pile up down to the square to see the guards march and but that's band. ceremony, Joe. Yeah, and I've yeah, no problem with majesty. that. Or the Lord Mayor is a coach as well. Yeah, in, I, I have in, no problem with so ceremonial occasions, George. I have no problem with high mass I just ceremon- want you going around. I don't care whether you call Lord Mayor or Mayor, but I want you going around in an ermine. Uh, gown and a chain and a carriage and I a think it's more appropriate stuff. to represent appropriate language to represent an appropriate dress rather than to be putting a chain around your neck in that sense if you want to wear the chain fine I think the chain should be worn on ceremonial occasions right. and state occasions I have no problem with that whatsoever right. but on a daily basis I think the idea of Lord Mayor Deputy Lord Mayor should be dispensed with and we should come down I to think much you're going to win anyway like well hopefully you will have, have you on my side George I'm winning yes, already you're racing yeah. Sinn Féin tend to follow what I say well, as I say, you know, they're the half-crowners, so you wouldn't know what <laughs> is going to come out of their mouths.
It must come in more often. I miss well, it. You said that to me three years ago. And this is the first time I've been in three years, York. Well, I can't wait to see you on this bike, though. I'm going to see this. I want to see this. I want to definitely. I want to see you on the footpath, George. On that uh, well, bike. what I want is I tell you what I'm going to do is I'm going to bicycle down that crazy uh, pedestrian way that you did in Clarendon Street. Oh, that's a good one, all right, Jim. That's a good one. We're going to rename it after you, George. <laughs> All right, Manning's Flynn, Independent Councillor, Dublin City Council. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.